Rolling. 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 Maybe that's a lot of people. Rolling. Rolling. Okay, well, let's do this thing. Huh? Hey, what's up, church people? One of my favorite things about being a pastor is getting to have amazing conversations with people that are just awesome. Something that I've seen to be true over the years is that church is just better with people that you know, love, and trust. So this podcast is taking a hack at turning up the relational temperature around here. A chance for you to live through me as I get coffee, this time lunch, with church people. My name is Colby Allen. I get to be on the pastoral staff here at College Heights. Today, I'm joined by a man whom many of you know and love, Titus Neuenschwander. How are you doing, bro? Hey, Colby. I'm doing great, man. It's great to be able to have a conversation with you and feel like I'm hanging out with a friend. I love it. Hopefully, I am your friend. <laughs> feels like. It's actor. not. I'm reality is. <laughs> yeah, reality is. <laughs> but it feels like. Uh, well, man, let's get right into this. Tell us about Tiny Little Titus. Uh, you know, um, I was really fortunate because my parents actually became Christians just a few months before hmm. I was born. And so... Um, that's actually how I got my name Titus. Yeah. My parents started reading the Bible, and my dad came across the book of Titus, and he thought it was a cool name. So I inherited that, and I also had the privilege of having parents who were transformed by Jesus growing up. Mm. So uh, Jesus was never like an introduction. He was just there <laughs> and an intricate part of our family. Uh, we lived at the church, and that church was our family. Yeah. Where was this at? This was in Fredonia, Kansas. Yeah. So, yeah, that small church definitely shaped us, was our community. That's where some of my closest friends were. Hmm. And so I'm really grateful for those uh, years that we had. Yeah. Do you have siblings? I do. I'm the middle of two brothers. Okay. Um, one's three years older, one's three years younger. Hmm. So we lived on a farm growing up, and so we were always outside. I did some crazy stuff <laughs> as a kid. I remember hiking across the river that was nearby yeah. before I was even in the fourth grade and doing all sorts of stuff I would never let my kids do. <laughs> Um, but I love being out the, in the outdoors and that's stuck with me. It's mm. my favorite place to be. Oh, I love it. I love it. And what did your dad do for work? Yeah. Well, my dad had <coughs> multiple jobs. Uh, he's always been at least a part-time farmer. Hmm. Um, that's kind of been inherited through the years. My great grandpa was a farmer. Yeah. Uh, my grandpa was a farmer. My dad's a farmer. And so we were just always outside and in that area. But yeah. he also worked as a police officer, as a judge, wow. and as the transportation supervisor <laughs> of our school. So yeah. it just depends on what which time season. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. So like plants, animals, all the above. Yeah. As far as growing a mm -hmm. farm. Yeah. Lots of usually crops would just be wheat and uh, soybeans and corn now and then running the cattle. And yeah. Hay. Yeah. I love it. Love it. Did your mom work? She did. Uh, she was most of the time a 
secretary at the junior high. Mm. And so, yeah, she loved her job and uh, she always viewed it as a ministry to the kids. And that's cool. And that took place there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Uh, what are your brother's names? My brother, oldest brother is Jeremy. Uh, he is a coach and teacher at Coffeeville, Kansas. Okay. And then my younger brother, Chad, he now lives in Florida. And uh, he's kind of a supervisor of um, uh, interesting product, which I can't even explain what he makes, to be honest. <laughs> he showed me pictures, and I didn't ex- understand it, and I said, that's really cool. <laughs> so. That's that's cool, man. Yeah, I like that thing that you made. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And do it well. Yeah, wow, that <laughs> thing looks amazing. Uh, to get more specific, I think it's actually like a, uh, it's like a secret packaging tape. Okay. Uh, that they use in boxes and different things. So they actually sell it like, so Amazon and people who use a lot of packaging to help reinforce it, something okay. of that nature. Cool. I love it. And so growing up, did you, so you're out on the farm a lot, you're outside a lot. Did you do sports, clubs, those kind of, those kind of things? What were some of the things that shaped you as a kid? Yeah, I, I did always do sports. That was partly because our, I mean, I graduated from a class of 53, mm-hmm. and so it was a small school. If if you could put on a uniform, you could do something for the team. <laughs> and so, yeah, whatever was going on at that time, I was I was probably involved at, in it at, at some level or yeah. another. Um, my least favorite was golf. That's where my <laughs> friends were, so <laughs> I gave it a try. Uh, I played one, one season of golf. It's because I tore my ACL in the fall, mm-hmm. and so I couldn't do track. That I wasn't ready to do track by the spring, and so I was like, "Wait a second, I can do golf though and treat it as rehab. I'll just walk. I'll do all this walking." My friends are there, and I get to play free golf every day for like three months. Right? I'll do it. <laughs> and I was horrible. I was the only senior on JV. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm only laughing because I can relate. <laughs> yeah. uh, I end up going back out for track, right. but uh, yeah, I did give golf a swing. Right? Ooh, I like it. Um, okay, so then, what? What's next? So that's childhood. What happens next? Yeah, um, I think next would be. I think what I would say was my first encounter where I felt like God was speaking. Mm. Uh, I grew up always wanting to be a medical doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I went to a church camp in my junior high years, there was a uh, OCC camp team there for the summer. And do you uh, remember who it was? Who was on the team? I, I can't remember. I can remember first names. I remember Rhonda and I think it was Matt, but I can't tell you who yeah. they are today. Yeah. And um, but uh, I remember uh, God felt like God wanting me to do something, and I didn't know what mm. that was. And uh, of course, you know, as camp goes, they would give an opportunity to respond, and I basically clutched the pew in front of me at that time and wouldn't let go, wouldn't let go. But when my parents came and picked me up, I remember looking out the rear uh, window of the car and just kind of praying, okay, God, whatever you want. 
and uh, I'll go to OCC. That's the prayer that came out. Uh, interesting enough, I spent my whole high school trying not to go to OCC yeah. and applying at a lot of other different <laughs> colleges or universities that had good medical programs. And uh, everywhere I went just didn't feel right. So it was kind of that same secondary surrender. Okay, God, I'll do whatever you want me to. Hmm. And uh, while my parents were always supportive, um, when I told them I was headed to OCC, that wasn't on the top of their priority list. And part of that was just pain from themselves being in ministry at different times. And um, so that kind of leaked out a little bit. But part of the saving grace in that time is my grandpa had actually also became a Christian hmm. uh, toward uh, the end of my high school career. And he wasn't a man of many words, but uh, he said, Titus, you're going to be a doctor of souls. Oh my goodness. I was just getting ready to say that when you said you wanted to go to, I was going to say, but now you're a soul doctor. He, That's crazy. Yes. And what's funny that I even remember those words, I think because he doesn't, he didn't speak a whole lot. Mm. He was a quiet man. And growing up, I didn't really even see him as a spiritual man yeah. that came latter. Yeah. And so those words were impactful, and I still remember them mm. uh, on the days where you don't feel like doing what you're doing. Sometimes. Yeah. Man, the power that we have over our kids and grandkids, Absolutely. and even kids that aren't ours, mm -hmm. you know? That's awesome. Okay, so you you get done with high school. Mm -hmm. You go to Ozark. Mm -hmm. What's next? So we um, dove into youth ministry, and um, but before that, I would say one of the formative things that happened in our lives is uh, I met my wife at uh, Ozark Christian College. And so as Leslie and I forged the future and we got married um, during our, my sophomore year of OCC, uh, we found out within a year that we wouldn't be able to have kids. And uh, like medically impossible, unless God did a miracle. Mm. And he <clears throat> did do a miracle. It wasn't a miracle of healing, but it was the beginning of a miracle of forming our family through adoption. Mm. And um, it would take a long time to tell all of our kids' stories. But um, truth be told, we would have no inkling that a child was coming into our home on Friday. And Monday, we get a phone call. And uh, by the next Sunday, we have one of our kids within our home. And that was mm. without going through any adoption agency, without going through foster parenting, without going through any of the traditional means. It's like he broke every single barrier uh, to form our family. And so over the years, we uh, adopted seven uh, kids and we uh, have six with us. We lost our four month old son back in 2018, named Tyler. But uh, that was really transformative for us in so many ways. Um, 
some good in what love looks like and how we love differently. Of course, just loving your kids in a, in a deep way mm. is transforming. I think the family is one of God's greatest forms of discipleship. Yeah. Um, and it comes so naturally, and some of it is you have to. Yeah. It yeah. forces you to grow yeah. and become somebody that you weren't. It forces you to confront some of the ugliness that mm. that we live in. Mm. And of course, nothing does that like marriage, and yeah. then kids continue the process. Yeah. And so I think that's God's first level of discipleship mm. uh, in coming into our lives. So that was obviously um, a really big deal for us. But what we didn't understand, we understood how to love. But all of our kids, to some extent, experienced um, early trauma in their life. And I know that word is used over and over again to mean different things. But what I didn't understand as a young dad is how much that affects how our kids think and how it affects how they receive love. And so, um, you know, there are some really difficult seasons during that in which we were desperate for help and we didn't know where to turn and the church didn't know how to help us. So some of those times are some of our sweetest moments that we experienced and yet also followed by some of our most difficult areas simultaneously. Would you take us back to the moment when you guys basically hear the news mm-hmm. of, hey, you're not going to have your own biological children? Mm-hmm. What, what was that process like and how did you, the two of you receive that? How did you work through it? Yeah, um, at that time we had uh, began to uh, hope that we would have a family um, of ours, so we we had names picked out. I do remember uh, it just felt like a sledgehammer hit us in the stomach to some level. Um, it was a it was a large it was a loss. It was already grieving hopes and dreams that uh, you thought would be, and now you're being told that uh, will never be. Mm. And um, so I remember I could still describe the room that we were in, in the doctor's office. I just remember grieving and looking over at Leslie as she uh, one just process and and seeing her grieve in deep ways so yeah I know that's been a long time ago and God has done so many redemptive things through that pain but uh, I don't have to have a large imagination to to put ourselves there but I do remember a time um and I can't tell you how long afterwards, months, just saying a prayer to the, say, God, uh, we are yours and we will continue to be yours, whether we have a miraculous child or we have none. Mm. 
And um, I think that was a beginning first step. And sometimes you pray prayers you don't fully understand, right? Yeah. Or yeah. you don't know the meaning of or the right. depth of. You genuinely are speaking that, but what's what all that means sometimes has to be unraveled. Mm. And um, But it wasn't long after that that uh, we got our, our phone call with Evan. And to make that story circle back around, the doctor that... Uh, diagnosed us as a couple was was also the doctor that delivered our first son and so <laughs> um, the birth mother was she was not in a place where she could be mom at that time and um, mm -hmm. when the social worker asked her what her next steps would be she specifically requested that how kind the doctor was to her and if she knows a family that doesn't have kids and can't have kids, then she would trust the doctor to place uh, her son. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. Leslie was a school teacher and got the phone call and um, the social worker at the other end of the phone says, we have a baby boy for you. And that stirs up a whole lot because we didn't have a home study. We didn't have, we didn't have a savings account. We had nothing. And uh, yet God worked through a lot of series of amazing events. And mm -hmm. Evan was home with us by Wednesday. My goodness. So, and then even then that goes, that story goes on because uh, it was the church that we, we weren't expecting a child. So we didn't have a car seat. We didn't have a crib. We, we didn't have a painted room. We didn't have anything. Right. We didn't have clothes. We didn't even have a blanket or any of the things that you would have on hand and we we would just come home and there were um, piles of things on our porch that uh, we would just bring in so That's awesome. it was just really a, a sweet moment yeah. of loving and being loved by the church <laughs> that's amazing how did you <clears throat> how long did it take for your minds to go from this is really painful we can't have our own kids too. Okay. We want to adopt. Was that a, was that a process for you? Was that pretty quick or take time for you to, mm -hmm. did it feel like settling, you know, no, we're, we're going to keep praying for a miracle. And you know, what was that process like for you to get to that place to be ready? Yeah, I think it was really a gradual process. We prayed even after we adopted, we sometimes still prayed for the miracle. Sure. And, um, leaving that door open. But um, when we first started really research adoption, we were very frustrated. We sometimes didn't attend the right church with the Christian organizations, or sometimes uh, the, the cost seemed absolutely impossible to even... Uh, know where to start. So we had several adoption applications through agencies and different things. And uh, in the end, it was just uh, a pile on the kitchen table because for one reason or another, it seemed like we, we it couldn't work. And um, that's just the way that God 
particularly worked in our lives. And I know even as I say this, my heart goes to other families who uh, experience similar things and they don't have the adoption miracle story Mm -hmm. or they're still uh, suffering or hurting on Mother's Day or Father's Day. So I don't understand, Colby, how God works in all those situations. I believe he works differently and he works in ways that are specifically tailored to us in ways that he whispers in our ear, I see you, Mm. I know you, you have not been forgotten. And um, ultimately, I guess I'm talking about a dependency on him Mm. rather than self-sufficiency, which is how most of us start when we're in pain. Right. So Evan comes home. This is you're still in Joplin at this point, or you're in Mountain yeah, Home. Yeah, we're still in Joplin. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're still students. Yes. Um, actually, I'm getting may get a little confused on the timeline. It, I think he still came when we before we had graduated, um, but we may have just recently graduated. We stayed in Joplin a year after graduating OCC and. We served at a little church in uh, Golden City, Missouri, not too far. But then our first ministry was in Mountain Home, Arkansas, where we were there for 10 years. And Hmm. that's probably where we called home, where it felt like home. Yeah, That's where um, um, five of our other kids joined the family, and they, they raised watched us raise our kids as they also somewhat raised us yeah. into yeah. maturity. So, and that was, that was a great time for us in a lot of different mm-hmm. ways. Um, so we have a lot of sweet memories there. Yeah. What are some of those memories of tell the story of mountain home? What was that 10 years mm-hmm. for you? I think uh, for us, it was more watching God put our family together Mm. and um, just he had no limits. Um, I can't, you can't put an adoption into words, but what I can say is uh, we had an attorney who uh, practically worked for pennies where um, several uh, three of the adoptions that we did were $500 a piece with no medical expenses right. and um, and including spanning over different states of Oklahoma mm. and New York. Right. So even as I sum up all these details, it was just the miracle of, of watching God work without limits. Mm. And so when I think of a time where uh God grew bigger and greater. I think that's that's where I start. And we lean on that and really say, yeah, to some degree, nothing is impossible yeah. with God. Yeah. And then also we were far enough from family that um, usually about six hours. And so that church just really adopted uh, all of us. Yeah. Uh, our kids had grandparents living in Mountain Home who would take them out, build birdhouses, take them fishing on the lake. Hmm. And um, it was also in ministry that some of those 
uh, our youth sponsors and coaches um, also became great friends. So mm-hmm. it uh, it was just a tight knit uh, group in ministry yeah. and in life. Yeah. So yeah, that was a great place to be. And Mountain Home, if you're ever there, it's just a. I think it's a beautiful place to be. Yeah. Right between two lakes and uh, nestled in a great part of Arkansas. That's cool. So how do you get up here? How, do you, how does that happen? What? Yeah. Um, man, Colby, you're making me um, pull at some of the highlights of God that are also um, somewhat very personal. And uh, even that's, highlighting... That's the hope. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I think... As I even think about myself telling these stories, I recognize that God doesn't always work that way. Mm. And it's it's kind of like when you read the Bible and you see the miracles, and yet you see hundreds of years in which there weren't any. Yeah, um, that was the case. But when we came to uh, Joplin, it was a year after we lost our son Tyler, mm. and. Um, College Heights called and asked if we'd be interested in coming on the youth ministry team. And to be honest, we weren't interested. That was, uh, we were enjoying our time. But I will also say this, um, we didn't know how to grieve. Um, It's somewhat embarrassing to say that when you've sat with others who are grieving and you watched others grieve and you try to support them. And there's so much about the grief process that we didn't understand. Mm. So a year after losing our son, uh, we were very broken people. Um, Particularly, um, Leslie and I handled grief very differently. Um, My strategy was to get back going, get busy, and um, to somewhat use the busyness as a balm of numbness Hmm. Um, but Leslie on the other hand had a hard time uh, uh, moving some days a hard time breathing and getting up and um, so at some emotional level I was pulling her and dragging her um, not because that's what I thought was best for her that's what was best for me. Mm. And so when College Heights called, we um, we were still trying to put our lives back together. Um, but we did open the door. And um, uh, we just felt like God was leading us there. And when I say uh, I was about ready to go to the interview... And I've told very few people this, but uh, I said, God, you've spoken in dreams before, so would you do it again? And I remember that was a terrible night of sleep. I couldn't go to sleep, and I tossed and turned. But when I finally went to sleep, I woke up having a dream, and the dream was uh, I saw somebody with, uh, you know, the child blocks with the letters and numbers on it and somebody was arranging those blocks and it spelled a word j-o-p-l-i-n 
And so, um, uh, what's so funny, Colby? I'm like, oh, that's so clear. Um, but I kept asking God for things. What does this have way. to do with Janice Joplin? <laughs> yes. What, what does this have to do with anything that's going on in my life? Uh, give me more. And so yeah. I don't want to say, wow, look how spiritual it is. Because I'm like, okay, maybe that was, I, I slept terrible. Yeah, what did that have to yeah. do with anything? It's a, it's a hallucination. It's not a dream. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> God, give me a dream. Not a <laughs> God, give me something. Else, you know? <laughs> Be more clear. Right. And so, um, and so they, I really did pray two other things in which God did answer in specific ways. And so we, we said, okay, uh, let's go for us. It really was, um, a sacrifice because at that time we were giving up at that time we had developed adoption connections and organizations that we were a part of and, um, so it felt like, to some extent, okay, the family we have is the family we will always have. Right. And uh, was that true? Did you do, did you adopt here? Yeah, we uh, we still adopted one more, and um, it was again just a random phone call during our first year at at uh, College Heights, and so that led to the adoption of our youngest daughter. And mm. so. Yeah, God can break any barriers that he wants to break. Yeah. You said you prayed two other things. What were those? Um, one was just affirmation uh, from a, a specific person asking God to speak through. And uh, Colby, I'm going to be honest, I can't remember what the other one was. Yeah. Uh, at this time, normally I think I could, but yeah. for some reason it's all not right. coming up. That's all right. So you get here, and you were the middle school mm-hmm. minister, yeah, and that meant seventh and eighth grade, mm-hmm. right? And then there's someone else that was doing fifth and sixth. Am yes, I eventually, right? uh, but fifth at that time, middle school was considered fifth through eighth. Okay, so it was it was both programs, and then we did do some changes and along the way, yeah. Um, but that was once again a sweet year of ministry. I wasn't excited to be truthful about saying, okay, you're going to only work with middle school students. But I did learn how much I enjoyed middle school mm-hmm. students. And uh, the joy of, if I can use this analogy, working with. Uh, wet cement of faith Mm. that hasn't been hardened to the world. Yeah. Are they confused? Absolutely. Are they trying to understand their bodies with hormones, racing things, and everything is confusing? Absolutely. But so many of those students, I think even me as a junior hire, God has a way of addressing spiritual and real needs in in that age group. And I think he does it with every age group, but because the faith is still not formed or hard, yeah. it sinks in deeper. Yeah. You know, it allows you to put anchors into that that hold, I think, for a lifetime. Yeah. Even I and some of that I'm just thinking of, you know, the first time I thought God was speaking to me. And even though I spent my high school saying, What was that? That meant nothing trying to run away from it 
uh, I could never let it go. Mm. And I still think he does that. And so I think that's a very formative time mm. in the lives of uh, our kids yeah. in our youth ministry program. They're the best. Middle schoolers, they're the best. They're, oh, they're so sweet. Awesome. Yeah. Mm. I love it. What? So what were those years like? You're settling in. You've got, by that point, preschool and elementary age mm-hmm. kids. And yeah, what's uh, yeah. what's that first season of ministry look like for you? Um, again, it was uh, a lot of things that were coming together that I greatly enjoyed in ministry. And Colby, I think personally, um, this is where we really saw our kids, specifically our older ones and some of the trauma that they experience. And when I say trauma... Um, I think I need to also define that as what takes place in the womb when a mother is trying to separate from the child that's in her because the pain is so great. Mm. That that has an impact too. I once ran across a father who said, yeah, we adopted all of our kids straight from the hospital. And I looked at him and I and I said, man, that is so exciting. I'm so glad you got to do that. And I said, from my experience, though, I said, that's not soon enough. Mm. And uh, he, he became very serious and he said, you are so right. My kids still struggle in different ways. So um, if you just think, uh, I could talk about also one of my studies and uh, master classes was yeah. how stress affects women who wow. are pregnant, what that what their bodies are experiencing, and then also what that does to a child. So there's just a lot there. Um, not that I want to give any mother's guilt or no, anything that no. happened, but those are just such a critical time. But ultimately, the question of, oh, how old were they when you adopted? may not always be the best indicator of a question to ask families who have adopted. Right. Because um, as a father, you understand love starts in in the womb, the very moment you find out. And that care, that nurturing is so incredibly Mm. critical in the lives of kids. And so some of what we are dealing with... um, happened when I was a middle school minister. My kids were middle schoolers and it felt like my family was falling apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were we were desperate in a lot of different ways, not knowing uh, what to do, where to turn. And now there we realize there's so much good information out there. and um, but at that time we were desperate. We were, we saw a family counselor who was so critical in our lives at that point. But uh, at one point, he looked us in the eye and he says, you're doing everything I would tell you to do. And uh, while that sounds comforting, it wasn't because what we were doing wasn't working. And um, so... um, in order to help one of our kids, we 
um, eventually in desperation decided that we're going to turn to a Christian residential home. And um, so for seven months, uh, one of our sons stayed there. And uh, Colby was the second worst day of my life. Uh, the first was when we lost Tyler. And the second was dropping your son off to be cared for somebody who doesn't love him, but would attempt to guide him and how humbling that is. Uh, we cried all the way home. And, um, but I talk about that moment because that was a transformation moment for us saying um, and asking the question, what if he doesn't change? Mm. Which led to the point of, if he doesn't change, we have to change. And so while he was gone for seven months, we started looking and, and trying to find answers for our family of how, how to be better parents. Uh, we were very rigid. We were very obedience-oriented. Uh, uh, obey right away. We read uh, some good parenting books that work when your kids are connected to their parents. But uh, how to raise a strong-willed child when your kids have a uh, when your kids don't have that foundation of of connection, or if their minds don't work in the ways that. Um, maybe the brains was designed to make, then we were desperate. And so we started looking for resources. And um, so that ultimately led to uh, understanding our kids better. Um, Brian Post, uh, we found a book of his called Fear to Love that was written for adoptive families. And it was kind of like reading a journal. Mm. Uh, and understanding, and it was true with what we were doing. Um, before, it was trying to get our kids to submit at all costs. And and as a dad, I did some things I would never do. Like, I emptied one of our son's room before he left. He was basically sleeping on a mattress because I used the phrase, um, Family has privileges. Mm-hmm. Wanting him to understand that being a part of a family was uh, was that you were loved, and um, so that's how we showed love by trying to get him to change, and uh, it proved practically impossible. So when our son came back. For being gone for seven months, we drained our um, savings account uh, to keep him there in the facility, and he was changed for about two weeks. But what took place over that s- seven months was the beginning of how we really can love and parent unconditionally, and that was actually the beginning of transformation of change for us and then also for our kids. How would you 
How would you describe the fundamental, if you're to, if you were to distill, you know, you said obedience-based, obey right away, um, those type of values, what did you change to? What was the, what was that shift? If you if you were to try to get it down to a few words or values like that. Yeah. Well, I know that we may mention this. I'm going to go ahead and mention it now in the context. I would say a good base for that would be Paul David Tripp's book on parenting. Mm. Gospel parenting. It's a gospel parenting centered focus. And Colby, where this became really transparent is the way in which I would talk and speak about God was not the father I was to my kids. A God who loves us no matter what. A God who uh, isn't a police officer. He's not looking to catch us doing wrong. Um, but he's in the midst of these things. A, a God of grace. And well, as much as I and we loved our kids more than we can put into words our kids did not see that aspect of God. They saw a conditional love, not that we loved them conditionally, but that's what we portrayed in our parenting. Mm. If you do this, <clears throat> then you deserve this, and we will do this. I'm not saying that we, there shouldn't be... Um, like every decision we make has consequences. Yeah. I'm not saying we just turn the eye. I'm saying how we respond to our kids and what they see. And the way that God changed the world did not come through the law. It came through grace. So grace parenting is really unconditional, gospel-centered and they see it, they sense it, they feel it. When we started to change, that was actually the beginning of a transformation uh, for my son. And um, so that is the way that uh, we work. That's our struggle is the opening to why we're passionate about helping other families. And... Um, you know, God just used that part of our story to continue to mold us and change us. Mm. What were some, <clears throat> without sharing anything that's not yours to share, what were some moments um, that you go, hey, we're making progress here. We've got some traction with this thing. Like, mm. whoa. And, you know, because I would, I would guess that it wasn't this like, Yesterday, we were obey right away, and now today, we're gospel parents. You know, yeah. like, I, I would imagine it wasn't like a light switch, that it was this, over time, uh -huh. we grew into um, a new kind of parent, but uh, are there moments that, and I'm asking because I'm curious as a parent, I want to be a father like that. I, I don't want to um, preach a gospel that I don't um, display to my sons, you know? So, um, could you, do you, can you think of any moments that were an example of like, Oh, like it used to go this way mm -hmm. and then 
we kind of changed our, our tactics here and we started to see this change. Yeah. I think if I could put that in a principle, it would be this, the relationship is far more powerful than rules. Yeah. So relationship over rules. And, um, you are so right. And it was a gradual transformation. We didn't get it. Sometimes I was even skeptical of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. It didn't even feel right. It went against how I thought parents should do and even how I criticize other parents, right? Mm -hmm. My own judgmental yeah. states of watching others saying you need to get control, you know, when you, when you walk by certain families struggling at different times. So... Um, it was probably a seven-year process by mm -hmm. the time we actually um, did this. And by this time, Colby, I had switched from a, a youth minister to becoming a, a family pastor and family mm -hmm. minister. But uh, because of my own struggles, and uh, to be honest, I did not teach a parenting class for several years. Yeah, Part of that was... Um, not feeling like I had a whole handle on on what I felt was true or didn't have the words to understand it. So Paul David Tripp's book was really meaningful because mm -hmm. it was it gave me the words and language of what I was trying to yeah. understand of how to do that. But there was a very specific moment uh, with my son that um, went to a residential facility. And uh, he would talk about some of the terrible things that happened there, what happened to other kids, which is uh, violent, abusive to some extent. And uh, he would be sharing with these things. And um, I would always say something like, Evan, we didn't want to send you there. And we tried everything we could. And I'd always have a but. Yeah. But you... You wouldn't yeah. listen, but um, uh, your brothers and sisters were being threatened, but whatever it may be. And Colby, um, there was a time where we just stopped saying but, and we paused and we listened to everything that he said. And we said, you're right. We are so sorry that you were there. And we're so sorry that we sent you there. We didn't know what else to do, but we understand that what you experienced there, no kid should have to experience. And we're sorry. When we said that with no but, um, he would bring that up, like not just that time, but over the years. And there was always a but. And do you know what? He doesn't talk about it anymore. It was just accepting the experience that he had. And now he takes responsibility of the things that he could have done. But you see, that's the difference. There's always a sense of blame or a sense of you deserve, you earned. And to the point where if we don't take the time to really listen and to understand then it's like we ignored and there's this void, there's a sense of pain that will uh, continue to haunt 
those we love or even ourselves in those moments. And so, yes, we did start to change. It was a long process, um, but it was one where we as parents had to accept our responsibility. We didn't know what we didn't know, and yet we have to accept, wow, we could have done things differently. If you would ask me, Titus, would, if you know what you know now, do you, would you have sent your son away? I would say, no. No, we wouldn't have, and I don't think we would have had to. Mm. But sometimes we also have to give grace to ourselves, and we have to accept uh, the present of um, and just our own growth. And so we not only need to give grace to our kids, but grace to ourselves. So you're on this, <clears throat> the two of you are on this journey together. Um, and you, your ministry shifts from middle school ministry to family ministry. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, because I don't know that there's too many youth ministers that go, you know what, someday I want to primarily do family counseling and, mm. you know, that I have a passion for that. Usually it's a passion um, for young people themselves and, and ministering to them and having those discipleship relationships. And I don't know, you know, if most youth pastors have the family passion. Um, and I would imagine God developed that in you through the crucible of, you know, your own, um, your own family experience. Um, could you tell us just about that shifting from middle school to, to family ministry and what those? Yeah. Like? Um, I think where we are today, Leslie and I would say, uh, God use, um, I don't know, the first uh, 40 years of our life to get us to a place where um, families are our passion and that discipleship um, first takes place with families and but if that part of who we are it's so core and critical of who we are if that's not reconciled with God's spirit and with God's grace then at some level everything else feels phony mm. our marriage feels phony our parenting feels that it's it's not real we're we're somewhat pretending mm. and so um and even i mean holy my kids and my wife have seen the worst part of me yeah they've seen the parts where <clears throat> i've been angry the parts where i've said things i shouldn't have said and yes there's lots of grace there but i don't know if and I'm talking, when I say the church, I mean the church. I don't know if we've been transparent enough and authentic in, enough in that realm to give families a safe place to go. Mm -hmm. Why do we hide our marriage problems? Why do we hide our parent problems? Mm. Why do we post the best things about 
our events and yeah. pictures. Right. And uh, many of us aren't aren't too uh, opt to post other things of the real life or the times we've yeah. lost it or whatever it may be. And so I think having a voice and a place of safety is a great place to start. And that was provided for us through a handful of people. Mm-hmm. We actually would uh, take <clears throat> families, other parents, and we would ask them for dinner that um, they would be adoptive families or families who had gone through hard times. And we'd take them to dinner and we'd ask, hey, uh, what did you learn? What do we need to know? And they gave us a safe place to be very imperfect. Mm. And so I think we are drawn to authenticity. And when we see it and we feel it, we want to be a part of it. I think that's true in every realm of life. But in our closest states of what takes place in our family and our marriages, that's, that's hard to be authentic about. And um, so I think that passion, in the same way we gradually were transformed, that passion gradually came about. And um, so that's just been part of our journey uh, along the way. What were some of the um, highlights of those family ministry years what were some of the things that you were proud of Mm. that you were that you were pleased to get to say wow i'm so glad that happened and i got to have a hand in it yeah i would say um because you were in that that specific role for like seven years mm -hmm. yeah i would say that year was or those years were the most beneficial part is one um it was very evident I had a lot to learn. And so that was motivating to say, okay, if I'm going to talk about marriage, how do I develop to be the husband I need to be? If I'm going to talk about parenting, what what do I need to know? And I realized there was so much I didn't know. Uh, within my first two weeks of being the family pastor, so two weeks before that I was middle school minister Mm. two weeks into it uh, I get a call from a couple saying hey will you counsel us and while I've done lots of pre-marriage counseling there's just a difference of what that looks like and so I'm pulling from my experiences and and ultimately uh, when they walked out the door I thought I did not serve them Mm. well Mm -hmm. so just the humbleness of saying I don't know what I need to know. Yeah. Which brings about some of the greatest joys is partnering with people uh, who are willing to go on the journey. Mm. And um, we developed a, a marriage team that would plan retreats and, mm. and workshops and seeing them grow and take on a lot of those responsibilities. That was just a great joy to be a part uh the team that brought julie slattery Mm -hmm. in uh from authentic intimacy Mm -hmm. i think 
uh, it's fun to see the roots of the ministry that have planted from that. Mm-hmm. I'm not taking any credit for it. God has done so much work in healing among sexual brokenness, mm-hmm. but to uh, listen, and that wasn't easy to come. That when I think about the timing of that particular uh, event that we did. It was the first live event we did post COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, finances were a huge deal, and it was just one of those things where God again broke every barrier to make that happen. And then um, the growth and the learning that um, that just that I got to experience through understanding the great depth and need for greater intimacy, not just in our marriage and our parenting, mm. but a greater hunger for an intimacy with God. I think God is far more driven by intimacy than we ever realized. Mm. And I think we see that by the work of his spirit, that literally God wants to be a part of everything that we do, everything mm. that we think and that we depend upon him for I mean, almost every word that we speak and every decision that we make, like that's the closeness that God desires. Yeah. And um, I think our independent nature as a culture is many times uh, harmful to our spiritual well-being. Mm. So just that's a whole different <laughs> aspect of who God is. Yeah. How did God start to to move you towards this? Um, the season that you're in now. Mm. What was that like over those seven years? How was he moving your heart towards what you're up to now? Um, Colby, if I'm completely honest, some of it was forced. Yeah. Um, it didn't come necessarily out of, out of my sheer desire, but um, it came out of some... Uh, toward the end, toward some difficult seasons and uh, in ministry and not understanding. Um, sometimes I really believe that God does work with a holy discontent. Mm-hmm. By nature, I am very loyal. Mm-hmm. I'm just a, a person who says, hey, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to serve well. And so... Um, I thought I would be uh, working on a church staff my entire life, but um, I realized that um, I wanted to, and we wanted to uh, work with families differently. Um, Colby, it's a tremendous, I mean, it's a tremendously long story, even how we got there, but something that was very, meaningful to us is on our wedding anniversary, we went to the same bed and breakfast for like 20 years. That's awesome. Uh, we became friends with uh, the owners of that uh, in Branson, and uh, we literally got to know their family. They knew ours. And uh, along the way, we started thinking, wow, as we watched them, the power of hospitality at work Mm. Um, they would be fixing breakfast and they would be having deep conversations. Uh, 
they use their ministry, they use their business as a ministry. And I thought, wow, that is so impactful. And um, when we started thinking of what, what could have served us well as a family when we needed it most? And part of that was letting people in your inner world. So we kind of thought at one time, wouldn't it be cool to use like a bed and breakfast as a, like you had the business, but actually the main goal was to bring families in and mm -hmm. to work with them one-on-one -on -one and uh, to sit with them, to have meals with them. Mm. Uh, we were we were drawn to that. And there were other ministries that we found out worked in that way. And, but um, we're not necessarily thought that's the direction we would ever go. Yeah. So one is we had that blueprint as a model saying, what if? Yeah. And the second part, when uh, Colby, the more I started to understand about the human heart and the human mind, and the more... I learned it was like seeing God's fingerprints on the intimacy of a human being. Mm. And so it's kind of like uh, somebody, a scientist who looks at the galaxy and he says, wow, look at the fingerprints of God. Mm. I started looking at how he created our minds to work and what motivated us as, as people and the void when close relationships weren't present mm -hmm. of what that does to a heart and a life. And uh, the more I dove into it, I just saw God's fingerprints. And so uh, a good friend of mine who uh, I work with today, uh, Brian Fiddler, I sat down with him at breakfast and I said, Brian, I don't know what it takes to be a counselor, but can you tell me about the journey? Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, he actually just started as a professor at Colorado Christian University. And um, he told me how the program worked. So uh, Colby, again, I went there on a, it was like July 2nd. And uh, at the end of the conversation, he said, Titus, if it's possible, you could start the program by the end of this month and be done in two and a half years. Um, so I went home that night, and I fill out every application I could. Um, they didn't think I would start the program that soon, but <clears throat> within four weeks of that conversation, I uh, I had to be at what's called a residency. That's how you start the program. If you don't get in, you have to wait till the following year mm -hmm. because they have a cohort that that you work with the whole time. Yeah. Um, all that be said and done, I got my login information at 2 a.m. of the day that class was starting. Yeah. And um, so I just uh, finished that program. So I officially have my master's degree in mental health counseling with an emphasis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so true. I'm still trying to figure out what not to do when I don't have any. Um, <laughs> but uh, so... Um, again, it's kind of like, okay, I have the degree, and yet I still see how much we need to learn and walk beside. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, Colby, last year, uh, we sold our house, and we bought uh, an, a 100-year-old, uh, much larger home 
that uh, we bring families into, um, that model of saying we're going to eat together, we're going to, um, yes, we're going to work on some stuff, but we keep the conversation going and the, the gift of hospitality. Uh, we finished our first year. Um, God has been incredibly kind. We brought 18 families into our home last year for wow. most of them, multiple day intensives. And um, we have not recruited. A lot of those are adoptive families mm-hmm. by nature. But now that I have my degree, we're also working in the realms of marriage and then uh, also grief. Um, we had a family come last November, uh, sent from another church that, um, Colby, they last lost all three of their children in a car accident, uh, including um, her mother. And so just... There's a sacredness when you sit with people's pain. And um, it's just such a privilege to be able to do that and just to listen and really see people in the midst of that. And uh, God has been so kind um, along that journey. So that's where we are today. we started a nonprofit called uh, Restoration Family Care. And the whole purpose of that is to help provide financial means for families who can't afford it. Um, we just started where it's, um, but um, all that be said and done is when I told you that we drained our entire savings account to help our son and we just found ourselves in poverty and emotional poverty, financial poverty, spiritual poverty. And uh, we said, if there's families who we can serve that um, in a way where they don't have to experience the same thing, we want to be able to help with that. Makes me think of um, (laughs) uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in the message, it says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Mm. This makes me think of, of that. So, restoration family care. Is that, is restoration house, is that separate? Are they two different things? Uh, yeah, right now, we're spending multiple plates. Yeah. And um, so we work with an organization that um, solely works with adoptive families called LEAF. LEAF is an acronym that stands for Love-Based Education for Adoptive Families. And um, so they they kind of keep us busy, and they, they provide a lot of the – that's basically our job. But then um, ultimately we – look at as hey how do we impact the church how do we help other families and that's where restoration house comes into play the home we live is also a large part of uh, where we work and provide that support so the only thing that restoration family care does it provides like we don't get paid 
except when a family comes. And that helps to offset the cost of, um, of coming. And so that's right now how we're working in that avenue. Yeah. Do you guys have a website or anything yet that you're, are you working on that? Mm. Yeah, that's still in the works. Mm -hmm. But, uh, even then, um, uh, people have been, been so kind in different ways. So, um, at the end of last year, our, we just said, Hey, this is what we're doing. And, um, so we'd love to put a playground up at our house and then have also a game room for teenagers because usually the whole family comes. It's not just the parents when, yeah. when we bring adoptive families in. And so we want a place where they're, uh, hang out. And so, um, anyway, they did a, a gift that we're going to be able to build a playground hopefully here in the next few months. I love it. I love it. And what's the, uh, what are they going to have in the game room? Yeah, we're still working on that. But yeah. right now we're nailing down a ping pong table and some arcade games. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. What, uh, is there anything else that you all need? Um, I know it sounds like a standard answer, but uh, really, it uh, prayer. I feel like we're um, we're being stretched in skills that we don't have um, to realize. Hey, what's oh my goodness, what accounting? What's taxes look like? Yeah, and so a lot of these things that we're kind of learning on the go, and. Um, and then also it does t- it does take a toll. I think we're trying to figure out when you bring people in, it, it does have a cost. Mm-hmm. So to be honest, some of our friendships, the availability of, of being social, uh, sometimes it feels like work. Mm. We love inviting people to our house and the hospitality, but when you have people at your house all the time, um, then it, then even doing the things you love can sometimes feel like work. Yeah. So we're really trying to learn um, more about ourselves. And so it's kind of a new season of discovery. Right. right. It's relearning how to do life. And if, okay, if I use my home primarily for hospitality and counseling, then maybe I probably shouldn't host, you know, because it'll feel like that again. It's yeah. like the whole... In college, they tell you not to do your homework in bed, because then when you're lay down for bed, your brain thinks, "Oh, I'm in, I'm it's in my homework work, spot. Right? You know, this is my yeah. homework bed. You know." And so, I wonder, I wonder how that works mm-hmm. um, in your setting. And those are things that we're trying to learn and, and even understand about ourselves. Um, so I don't want anybody to think if we invite you over, it feels like work, (laughs) you know, that sucks, uh, in that way. We don't want that, but we're just trying to understand it. Do not go to Titus and Liz. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Don't, don't turn us down if we invite you. (laughs) I love it. Well, uh, what, uh, what word of encouragement, exhortation, blessing, might you have for College Heights? Mm. I think um, for one, what comes to mind is I just have a great sense of pride for 
through College Heights. Transitions are so incredibly difficult and um, for the staff and even for families and individuals and college students and everybody who comes. I mean, to some extent, you feel that in different ways. And uh, I'm just so incredibly proud of the way in which um, the church has risen, the perseverance that it displays. I just think as a church, it's a beautiful thing to watch. And um, specifically, uh, the focus on prayer and that dependency upon God. I think in our moments of weakness, he really is a God of strength. And there's nothing he enjoys more than being asked Mm. to come and walk beside and change and transform, Mm. which are all scary prayers. But um, I have greatly um, thanked God for the season Mm. and for that focus, not just for the church, but then for... Uh, me as an individual. Yeah. And um, so I'm just grateful for that and excited about the future. Me too. It's good. God's good. Man, I'm grateful for your story, grateful for your time today. And, you know, I know uh, you do a lot of listening. So uh, I was glad to hear you talk. And <laughs> uh, so. Okay. Colby, it's so such an honor and privilege, and um, man, thanks for inviting me to yeah be a part yes. today. It's great, man. I I love you. I'm grateful for you, and grateful to uh, to get to be a few steps behind you and have you as an example uh, for me, the kind of man and father and pastor I want to be like. So thank you, brother. Well, I got a lot of work to do. Yeah. We can grow together. Let's grow together. All right, church people, we love you. We'll see you soon.